Hey guys, and welcome to the Talking Llamas podcast, first bonus episode, where we'll, we'll be covering Silly Symphonies. Yeah, this is a loose series. I mean, I, I forget how frequently we, we're going to do it, but we're going to cover some of the more popular Silly Symphonies and some of the background on them and background on, on the series as a whole. Yeah, so um, we, you know, Silly Symphonies is something we've been sort of peripherally interested in for a long time, but... Um, you know, now more than ever, there's there's access to these, be it YouTube or uh, Disney Plus even has some. And, uh, you know, the one we talk, we talk about today, I believe, is only available on YouTube right now. Um, but yeah, well, it's worth noting, too, that a lot of people think about classic Disney and they they'll think about, uh, you know, Snow White. Uh, Mickey Mouse for sure. Yeah, like Mickey Mouse shorts. Uh, Mickey Mouse shorts is probably what they would be most familiar with, and then Donald Duck, Goofy, and, and so on. But these silly symphonies, whether people know them as silly symphonies or not, they came out at about the same time that Mickey Mouse came onto the scene. A little less than a year after Mickey Mouse cartoons started. Yeah, and so it's you might yeah you might like three uh what three little pigs. Mm-hmm. That's one that people probably recognize and remember. There, there are more, but. This is something that maybe people just don't quite know as much about by the name Silly Symphony. So the one we're talking about today is is the sort of inaugural piece, um, the Skeleton Dance, which I think is is pretty well known amongst what would you say like really really big Disney fans, but maybe not the general public. I wonder how many people, if you asked, like there's a lot of people I know at work who are really into Disney, you know in a way you know they like talking about it but i wonder if i asked them about the skeleton dance if they'd have any idea what what that was what do you think i think it's probably fairly unpopular disney history historians for sure are, are into all this stuff and fans of of classic disney yeah probably it may be the kind of thing where people recognize it when they see it uh for me i i recognize it when i hear it because it i hear clips from it at the museum all yeah. the time okay um uh, <clears throat> So if you've been to that Walt Disney Family Museum, you know at least images and sound from it, if not the whole the whole five and a half minute picture. The the symphonies sort of acted as a I don't know, it it seems like and we read this book or I, I've read we've both read this through this book and the introduction to the book about silly symphonies. Um and it explains how the the symphonies were sort of a testing ground for a lot of innovations and and things that would be later used in you know feature length films and and that sort of thing like uh technicolor and and uh, the multi-plane camera those sorts of things different special effects synchronizing music to the to the animation and Walt Disney used these as sort of a, a stepping stone into the feature length films and a testing ground for the things that he would later use and that now are sort of commonplace, but back then were like completely innovative. So it's really interesting to watch these and ha- with that in mind that these cartoons, uh, you know, even though they're kind of archaic in a lot of ways, they really at, at the time were revolutionary pieces of art. I mean, and and watching them now, it's it's they're really old, and uh, of course, and and they and that kind of shows, but at the same time. It's kind of amazing when you watch it too that they were able to do these sorts of things even you know in the in the late twenties. Well, think about it. A lot of film was silent. At yeah, the that's time. true. Uh, and music probably I don't know for sure, but I imagine that music came onto the scene like just behind the silent film. Yeah, uh, I think so. And that's this is true. for people, live action. 
Uh, but then even cartoons kind of started with some sound effects here and there. And I think Walt was synchronizing, you know, with Mickey early on some, some sound effects, but, and the dialogue was there, but, but this, it was so much more advanced and risky, uh, especially to have, well, what was there? There was some, uh, like not controversy, but like critics, not critics, theorists of film, given that talkies as they were called Mm -hmm. were sort of new new ideas people didn't quite know if it would work so there was that kind of stuff where with walt what he was doing people didn't know if it was really a great thing but he was so good at making it i don't know making it work like he i guess he had a vision that transcended any possible what critiques yeah or or like any major major ones yeah so this was uh you know the mickey cartoons sort of I mean, those were hugely popular and did sort of help fund the Silly Symphonies, which, again, was sort of the the testing ground for a lot of the stuff we see later. Um, And the Skeleton Dance specifically, I mean, that's sort of the the pilot for for the the Silly Symphony series. It's, it's uh, again, the initial showing. So they were trying to sell this to people um, to get them to get a distributor for it, basically. And... You know, like you said, there's a lot of sort of hiccups to that or um, what would you say? People um, skeptical of it and, and not wanting to invest in it. But eventually, you know, they, they were able to get, you know, someone to distribute it. And again, that, that spawned this whole thing. I think they created well, for, 26 well, Lady Symphonies from 1921, 1929 to 1931. Well, a quick fun fact is that the Carthay Circle Theater was the mm. opening theater they they decided hey yeah we'll we'll play this before a, a movie a film and that was the premier theater for the full-length feature snow white and the seven dwarfs famously and now there's a restaurant in california adventure themed uh basically a replica of it parts of it right but it's interesting that the you can track the the moment in history where disney sort of i guess came into contact with the carthay circle and then here we still have we still have a reference to it anyway today. That's really cool. But these silly symphonies were a step beyond the Mickey Mouse shorts because they were multidimensional in what they were trying to do in terms of what, like creating mood was a big thing. Yeah. Uh, at least early on, you can see it definitely in the skeleton dance, but also tackling fairy tales. And yes. That, that comes later. We'll talk about those in other, you know, episodes. But uh, yeah, what else? There was a couple other things too. But the point is, uh, the, the color, I mean, making it all come together, and, and you can really see by the end of the uh, the Silly Symphonies how it helped create the features and it, what made them so so good. You want to get in more in-depth into the skeleton dance? Yeah, the, the, so the skeleton dance, um, it, it was what was used really to sort of attract a national distributor for the series. And... Uh, eventually that was that became Columbia Pictures who signed a contract to to distribute the silly symphonies but i have the plot here and it seems like you're looking at it too but the plot for the skeleton dance if we should go over that well i was just looking at uh, you know there's a bunch we had this book that we have it's called we referenced it a little bit earlier it's called Walt Disney's Silly Symphonies a companion to the classic cartoon series and it's by Russell Merritt and JB Kaufman 
it's got a blue cover, so if you look for it, um, you'll notice a blue cover. Um, it's really detailed. It includes a filmography of the different uh, 75 different Sully symphonies uh, and, and with a lot of different information like opening dates, the story, a synopsis, synopsis of what it's about, uh, working titles, how much it costs. I don't know if I said that already, but release dates, everything, references that it makes, uh, animators, and so on. But uh, this one, we didn't. I don't think we said when it actually came out. It yeah, was when it, was the release date? It says here that uh, Los Angeles opening, which appears to be the the one, yeah, Carthay Circle, June tenth, nineteen twenty nine. So, yeah, <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> and then it, yeah, it went from there to San Francisco and then New York and all that. And then it, it had a working title. Interest. I don't know if you saw this. I did. Yeah. There's, so a working title is basically a title. Three you, of them. You have oh, there's three working titles. Yeah, well, to go on, ex- explain what it is. A working title is a title when you sort of think up the idea of a movie, um, and then it's not really the final title. Uh, so you're when you're re- referencing this movie as you're working on it, you're calling it by its working title, and then eventually when the movie's finished, that, that title may change. Yeah. So the one that they have first on this list is called The Spook Dance. That's one I saw. Is there yeah. others? And other, underneath that, it says two other titles were suggested: uh, Mister Mysterious Melodies and Haunted Harmonies. I so kind of like those, but the Skeleton Dance is more direct. It seemed like they're playing with the alliteration a little bit. Um, yeah, but maybe they were just trying to get it out, you know, more straightforward. And yeah, it's their first one. They're trying to attract people. So well, I don't think we said. I mean, this this idea for this series came from a, a composer Walt was working with, Carl Stalling. And he, he had the idea, he had the skeleton idea too. And, you know, it, it came to be what it was by the end, but. Walt um, called it a really dandy idea. Yeah. And that <laughs> is a quote. Whenever you see Walt's like uh, telegrams or whatever back to family, they're always like, they're really of the times. It's kind of interesting. Uh, but yeah, he, he was really excited about it, um, about the idea. Uh, yeah. Uh, what And Carl, I think maybe he said, or Walt said, somebody said that, they really liked the idea of, of skeletons dancing, and it was the kind of thing you would see in, like, a vaudeville show. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't necessarily a new idea to have skeletons dancing. It, I think they even were saying that you could sort of trace this back as a, what would you call it? Not Maybe not a cultural phenomenon, but maybe it is. Yeah, I, I something, don't know. It's, something like that. So, something that kind of permeates through the culture. I think the word milieu mm. comes into play here. I don't know how to use it, though. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, like, back in the 1800s, mid-1800s, I think, maybe even before then, but the point is this idea wasn't entirely new. It has roots in the past. Um, and that's obviously what the fairy tales are like, too. And then what they do with, is they take the inspiration and they make their own thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in this one, four skeletons conjured up from their graves by the 12 strokes of midnight dance and... What is, what is the word exactly? Cavort to music? Well, that's the word on the page, yeah. <laughs> One skeleton beats mallet like bones on the ribs of another. Yet another skeleton plays a cat like a bass violin. Then others shimmy and Charleston. Everyone dances and plays until driven back underground by the cock's crow at sunrise. So yeah, that's how the cartoon goes. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to it yeah, than Yeah, it's that. a little over five minutes I don't know long. about you, but I, I, I went through each, like each little scene within the whole thing yeah. and just sort of wrote down what's happening. Cause we talked about creating mood and, and they mentioned in the book that it, in the opening scene, you can really see it. And so like the opening sequence, it opens up with uh, like a flash of lightning, 
which included some techniques they were going through in the book that I can't recount with any expertise here. Uh, so, but there's lightning. You, you, you can tell there's a storm happening, and then we're, we're zoomed in on this owl's eyes. And then it zooms out, and you see the owl on a tree branch with the full moon behind him and branches swaying in the wind. They're basically horizontal. Um, and so you can tell that it's you know, a blustery night. Uh, and then one of the branches turns into like a hand, yeah, right? And, it appears and to be like a hand. What is it trying, doing? Like it's like grabbing or, at, yeah, yeah. I feel like it's trying to grab at the owl. Yeah, and so the owl recognizes that, and what what happens? It gets sort of scared from it. Every time it ha- yeah, the owl's kind of puffing itself up like it's big and bad, and then every time this comes, yeah. it kind of rears its neck and exposes its like bare neck and and appears frightened. Yeah, um, is is the sense I got. And the the, the next shot after that is that we get the graveyard. So this is where thing the uh, skeletons are going to come from eventually. But we also have like a small church at the front of it with a clock tower that strikes midnight and these vampire bats. Yep. Uh, they fly out of the uh, the bell tower at that point. We also have a spider web in the foreground. And so when the, the, the bats come out, they're like flying towards the camera or the screen where we are. And they they fly past. So, you know, and that's sort of like a transition. We're going to make a, a new scene in a second. And then a spider comes down from, from the yes. top of the screen or whatever. And then we switch over to the next one. Where That's we where get. the cats? Uh, actually, the it dog. starts with a howling dog. So behind him is the full moon, too. A very Pluto-looking dog. You think so? I think it looked a lot like Pluto, yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe. It's kind of just a silhouette, but... Maybe. Maybe. I thought he was more. He had more curvy lines, especially around the head area. More like a greyhound, almost. Maybe. I, I thought it looked a lot like Pluto, but again, it was mostly a silhouette, so it's hard to tell. Yeah. It's interesting. It's that style, you know? Well, let's, let's stop for a second and think about those those scenes just the graveyard and the owl i mean yeah. you, you get the idea that it's a storm okay so i'm going to backtrack just a little to, uh, they made basically a thesis statement at the beginning of, in the book like this is why we wrote the book and, at least in part and it was because quote the sillies as they call them tackle important and abiding psychological themes that have their roots in the primal fears and pleasures we encounter as children so, you, I mean, the fear of, what, a, it's a stormy night, the lightning and thunder. Yeah, dark. Yeah, uh, graveyard is certainly spooky because death, right? Like, these things that we come to recognize as... Bats. Yeah, bats. Spiders. Spiders. Some people are afraid of owls. Um, yeah, well, who an owl making a sound in the middle of the night. Yeah. By the way, the sound effect for that owl hooting or whatever it's doing, it's really bad. But you can, <laughs> if you watch it, you can see that, oh, that oh that's coming from the owl. Yeah, I think if you heard it sort of like with your eyes closed, you'd be like, what is that noise? But yeah. when you see the owl, you're able to, your brain kind of makes the connection and kind yeah. of fills in the blanks for you. So they're doing all these great things where they're trying, they do create the mood with the owl. And then the cats come in with the, and the, the dog too, howling in the night is, that's like a wolf. That's gotta be primal. It's visceral. Like humans will recognize an animal howling. If you've ever heard a, a coyote making noise in the night, you get a little bit of a chill up your spine. Because it's it's loud and you don't know where it's coming from, and it's so different, but yet familiar. And you get some of the gobs of spit, which you actually there's a there's a point where one of the cats spits like a big gob of spit on the other cat, and um, it's actually just right before the skeletons show up. But that's something that you see in some Mickey cartoons, and you see really? in, yeah you see in an example you see it for in Steamboat Willie Pete spits on okay spits on Mickey steamboat willie whatever but that's something that i noticed you do see that sort of thing in other mickey cartoons 
Yeah, so shortly after the cats like finished their little dance, because they're sort of tugging at each other, apparently spitting at each other. I didn't catch that, but yeah, that's interesting. They grab each other's noses and yeah. stretch them. And then this is sort of this is where we get to see the skeleton, the first skeleton appear. One skeleton appears first, and uh, so he comes from behind one of the tombstones uh, that's in between the two cats. So the two cats are there's three tombstones, and the cats are on the left and the right tombstone with one in the middle. And out comes the skeleton, uh, and he sort of jumps towards the screen. Yeah, I like this part. It's like the camera is going through his empty, like through his ribs, through his pelvis. You enter through his mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's darkness for a moment. Yeah. But then it's clear that actually what happened is you traveled through the skull, down through the rib cage, and then the skeleton comes out on the other side. I think that's that's actually really cool that they did that. Yeah, it's cool. I I have to imagine that was a, a unique thing to see at the time. It's kind of a unique thing to see now in a strange way in that I didn't expect it out of that type of cartoon. Um, also to figure out how to animate that. Well, and that's maybe we should mention Ub Iwerks. Um, basically, with maybe some help, it's kind of unclear, animated this basically by himself over a matter of six weeks, um, basically yeah. doing nothing else for six weeks. Just um, really worked hard on this, it sounds like. So we've talked about him in the past, but uh, a really essential am- animator in Disney's history. So And innovator, but we can talk about him later because there's a lot of actually really cool stuff that he did. Okay. And by later, I mean a separate episode. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't want to um, get too deep into him, but the point is he's, he spent six weeks doing this and very little else um, with n- next to no help just because that was that was the setup at the time, not because, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't. There, there might have been one or two animators who helped, but again, unclear. Yeah. So, Anyways. Yeah, so next the skeleton, he's out of the, the tombstone or the grave, and he comes out into, he's gone to the, through the, I guess the camera's gone through him technically, but then eventually we see him basically on the the stage that will be where the skeletons dance. He's doing his own little dance and series of movements, and this is where we really get to see the synchronized music, Yeah, which is, it stands out in this moment, and it's actually pretty cool. I don't know that it stood out in in any other parts of the uh, earlier scenes. Maybe not, but here the, the whole dance is really all about it. Uh, but then he hears the the owl make a sound, which again is not authentic. Um, and then he's he freaks out and goes back behind the the tombstone from from where he came. And he sort of looks around and he's, what do we, you know, where did that come from? And then he sees an owl and he's basically upset at it. Yeah. Takes off his head, throws it at the owl, hits the owl, and all the feathers fly off the owl. So there's this this bare bird <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on a branch. Yeah. And then the skeleton head bounces on the ground perfectly back to uh, to the skeleton. And then I think after that, the, the rest of them sort of come out. And they all start playing various instruments of things within the graveyard. Well, you mentioned point. a couple of them. I mean, the one that really stands out is when towards the end of the dance, he, uh, one of them, you know, they don't have individual identities, but the thigh bones are taken out of, uh, out of this, out of the place. One of, of one the of skeletons. Them. Yeah. And then that essentially just puts the, the, the skeleton on basically all, all fours. fours. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so those are, those are the mallets. He plays them like a z- xylophone. Yeah. He also that one of the skeletons also plays um, a, a cat as an inch, like a bass. Um, yeah, I couldn't tell if it was a bass, but it says it in the book. I, I was going to say like a violin. Viol- so. Well, a bass violin is yeah. what the book said. Now, yeah. um, that's something also. Animals being played as instruments is something that you see in Mickey cartoons all the time. Yeah, so that's another one. 
Um, but I mean, at that point, there had only been what maybe two Mickey shorts. I mean, this was in production. Like this was almost simult- simultaneous with uh, Steamboat Willie. The idea yeah. and the I mean, so I'm just saying the the ideas were, you know, they go back and forth. Yes, and you you see that That's you right. see that sort of um, that work in both of these types of cartoons. Um, so it's interesting when you watch them and, and you notice that. Um, yeah, I mean, it, and the dancing is, like you said, it's synchronized to the music in a way that I think back then would have been really impressive, actually, uh, to people. Well, they had a specific technique for doing it that we could cover in a separate ep- one of these episodes uh, or somewhere within this podcast that we do uh, because it's pretty interesting that they, they had a formula for it and it worked. And For all I know, they... They might have written the the manual on how to do this. I don't know, but well, Steamboat Willie was one of the original ones that they did it with, and they were testing it. I think they tested it in sort of a showing that they did for like friends and family of Steamboat Willie, and they were all kind of like messing around trying to get. They weren't even synchronizing the sound; they were trying to make the sounds themselves to the, and seeing if they could make it work. Um, so that's just to say that if they weren't the first, they were sort of in line with the first, like they were doing this sort of independently, whether they were the first people or not, without uh, any type of playbook on how to have it done. So very impressive, very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, most, I guess the tail end of this whole uh, first first Silly Symphony is the skeletons dancing and doing, a, yeah, synchronized, but a bunch of gags too. Um, yeah, the one playing the xylophone eventually pounds the skeleton that is the xylophone just hits it so many times that it just collapses into a pile of bones. And that, that actually happens at the very end. Cause what the, the rooster comes out, rooster comes right about then. And that's sunrise. So they're, they're out there doing this for like six hours yeah. or whatever the sunrise is. It could be seven hours, but uh, yeah. And then they, all the skeletons sort of realize that it's time to go back in the grave and they collide in on this sort of stage where they are on in the graveyard. And they're just a pile of bones in the middle. Yeah, uh, and then they reassemble as basically like a horse or a dog or something. Yeah, but all the heads are stacked up on yeah, each other, and on the, the, front the, end, the yeah. body of like a horse or dog is behind them, and they all jump into the same grave, except for one what, pair of like, legs, like shin bone and foot. Yeah, and it's and like it kicking comes, the grave yeah. to let them in. They open up and grab it, and as as the uh, the grave closes because it sort of opens up like a I don't know what what it opens up like, but. It, as it closes, then that's the end of the song, and that's the end of the Silly Symphony. Yep. I uh, This one's on YouTube. It's about five minutes long. Um, you can find it pretty easily, and the quality is good. It's on, I think, Walt Disney Animation Studios' channel. Oh, okay. So it's, I mean, it's like the official version yeah. from what I can tell. The quality's good. Yes. So you, this should be, you, you should definitely go check this out. It's five minutes of your time, and it's, not only is it a good silly symphony, but it's the it's the inaugural one. It's the it's the one that started it all out. It's the pilot, and um, it's really sort of a time capsule into the times and to what Walt Disney and his animators were working on back then and what they were trying to do. And this is a completely innovative cartoon, really, for the time. I think that's all I have to say about it. I really enjoy it. I'm sure we'll reference this one in in future episodes because it's very important. Yeah. No, I I enjoy this one quite a bit. So, all right. Well, without anything else to say or whatever, we we will catch you on our next bonus episode, We will bid you farewell. Yes. And we will see you on our next bonus episode, whenever that is. Indeed. Have a good one, guys. Take care.